This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and today I'm sitting down with Iqbal Wahab. Iqbal is a successful restaurateur who founded the Cinnamon Club in 2001, which redefined modern Indian cooking, and founded Roast in 2005, which helped drive a revival in classic British food made from seasonal and regional produce going on at the time. Um, as I say, both are extremely successful operations, a permanent part of the, the London dining landscape, and uh, he's now about to open a new restaurant called Atticus, again in London, this time up in Angel. Um, the new restaurant is going to have social impact at its heart from the outset. Iqbal sits on the board of a number of organizations, trusts, and so on. He's a director of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, um, has advised government, and uh, was the former chairman of a Department of Worker Pensions Ethnic Minority Advisory Board. Um, so we were talking around a bit, a bit around some of those things as well. Um, in 2009, Iqbal received a, an OBE for his public service and uh, services to the hospitality industry as well. And then in 2010, he was made a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. Um, describes himself as a restaurateur with social meddling tendencies. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to unpicking that and finding out what that means. And uh, just to say thank you very much for your time, Iqbal. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you for coming on. I'd like to jump in and talk about um, social impact in restaurants. In Roast, which is where we're sat at the minute, um, your restaurant opened in 2005, you've, you've put in place a number of social interventions and, and like I said, you've, the new restaurant wants to embed that right at its heart. I just wondered maybe if you could start by talking about what, what some of those interventions are, what you're hoping to achieve in the new restaurant. When, when we first came to uh, Borough Market, one of the things that really struck me was how expensive the produce was in the market and um, who was actually buying it. Because yeah, here we are in a relatively deprived part of London, it certainly was then, of um, South East London, Southwark. Um, and people were coming in from Kensington, Chelsea, and uh, Richmond, and Barnes, because who else could afford £15 for chicken? Or it was literally £1 for a tomato in 2005. Um, and uh, you know, across the road from us, we've got Walworth, Elephant Castle, we've got some you know, pretty deprived areas, and nobody from those parts found that this was a market for them. So I started engaging with a local Prince's Trust in Southwark and started seeing how we could bring them into the market for, you know, via roast, um, show them that this, um, what this restaurant was doing, that it could be a place for learning. They'd, I should take people around the market, they'd engage with food producers for the first time in their lives and also talk to them about the possibility of looking at this as a place that when they finish school or um, uh, uh, the Excel centres that some of them are coming out from, uh, that this could be a place that they could work. Um, so our, our social intervention started with that, and we did a, a quite a radical thing um, in those days, and that from day one, all the profits of one of our tables went to support uh, local, proje uh, local projects like the Prince's Trust. And so that evolved into uh, what we call the Roast Foundation. And um, why that was quite radical is that usually restaurants wait till they've hit a certain uh, level of profit and then apportion part of it to what uh, used to be called co uh, corporate social responsibility. We said we, we don't want to wait for that to happen, let's make it an integral part of who we are from, from the get-go. Of course our accountants hated this because they said that it's just like stifling our, our ability to to grow to profit, and I thought, and a lot of this stuff just that happened organically. We did, we just felt it was right to do. We, um, and the thought was that um, 
this allocation of uh, what potential profits is not a loss-making concern, it is actually an investment in our community. And the investment in our community will come back and reward us. But over time, what we found is that people do actually come uh, to Rose because of the work that we do. And um, even businesses as big as Goldman Sachs, um, they will ask when they book for a table for the Rose Foundation table. People want to be part of a process that um, where uh, uh, we say here is that your money can go much further when you dine at Rose. It doesn't just stop and start with a great experience, which we hope to fulfill, but it actually carries on giving. Um, and people started to see that. And as people have started to see that, we've had more insights into um, how a business can not just do good, which a lot of businesses do want to do, but can do so with meaning and impact and engagement, not just with the people who are what we call beneficiaries of uh, our activities, but also along the way with other stakeholders. Um, and they could be uh, obviously our employees, our customers, our neighbours, environment market, the traders, um, our investors. Um, everybody can be a part of this um, movement that we now call an ecosystem. Um, and as we've had more of these uh, learnings along the way, um, I've, I've, I've realised that you know, when we do our next restaurant, all these things that I've picked up and I've been like incremental pieces of social impact, we can actually drive into the essence of the core of the new business. And so yeah, what, uh, the restaurant we're going to call Atticus is going to be a southern soul food, southern US restaurant. And um, we're calling it a purpose-driven um, business. And the purpose is to see that you will do a lot more for your business if you drive the vision, not just in terms of profit, but a people and profit or planet and profit. Um, and, and they become key marketing engagement tools as well as uh, socially impactful activities. So yeah, the long answer to your question is that, yes, we, we've learned a lot here and I want to build on that because there is a new form of business coming up which drives purpose and profit together. Usually purpose is left to charities. Now it's uh, the domain of businesses and becoming more so. It sounds like you want it to be a, a sort of a shop window, a kind of a, a case study almost for the industry, sort of, um, so as, as well as doing the good that it does directly through the restaurant, you want to show other people that this can be done. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm very wary of is I, I don't want to like, appear holier than thou. Um, and I don't want to say, say look at all this good stuff I'm doing, aren't I a nice bloke? Because um, many people tell you I'm not. But, <laughs> um, but um, a lot of restaurateurs um, haven't really thought much about the kind of things we do. Say, I'll give you an example of, um, we, we, we've historically employed a lot of uh, ex-offenders and taken people from Brixton and other prisons on day release who've come and worked here while they've been serving their sentences. Many of whom, once their sentences are complete, have ended up getting um, jobs with us. Um, and uh, I went to a board meeting of the Restaurant Association once and I said, but you guys, we're always complaining about the fact that there are not enough people who are filling all our job vacancies. There are, you know, we're going to have an even bigger problem when Brexit comes. Um, we're good at the moan. We're not good at the solution. And I said, 
come down to Brixton Prison with me. There's a restaurant, public place restaurant called The Clink, and we took a coachload of restaurateurs down to breakfast there, and I said, this breakfast has been cooked and served to you by prisoners. These are not professional waiters or chefs. They've learned what they know from being in prison. Most of them haven't um, worked in uh, catering before, some have, but these guys are going to be desperately looking for jobs when they come out. As you've seen today by the quality of the food and the quality of the service, you're not going to be making concessions on standards. These guys are as good, if not better, than some of the people that we've already employed. So before you start thinking about uh, where else are we going to find uh, future talent pipelines, you've got one right here. And 75% of people come out of prison without a job. You've got 10 to 15% uh, vacancies in your companies right now. Do the, do the logic, do the maths. It's, it's very simple. And, uh, and I created this thing called, it called the, the three R's. It's a new three R's. Um, so it's uh, corporate respo uh, social responsibility. You're, you're, you're helping solve a problem which um, charities and governments can't. Uh, it's HR. It's a human resource problem because you can't fill your vacancies. And as I found from what we've done at uh, Rose, is good PR because newspapers love writing about it, then other customers come, come to us on the back of it. And public relations is not a, a cynical ploy. It's actually very important to communicate what you do. Um, and especially after I found out when we'd done some work with Gordon Ramsay on his uh, program where he uh, trained inmates in Brixton again on how to cook, and somebody ended up coming to work here. Uh, to cut a long story short, and, and the Evening Standard ran an article about it. And, um, and a lot of people contacted us saying, I've never been to your restaurant, but now that I know you do things like that, I'll start coming. Now, that is a commercial case for doing something, if ever I heard one. And it was also a game changer in terms of how this company viewed activity like that, because it stopped being social meddling Iqbal going off and doing new things. And it became an employment, uh, employment tool here. So our head chef would now contact uh, the clinic directly if he had a vacancy. Um, so, and it, and, it, and it stops becoming like a social impact and becomes a core commercial impact, and which happens to have a, a social impact along the way. And that's probably how ideally businesses should view this. But for the time being, we're in a bit of a stepping stone kind of way. And so what we're planning at Adkus is, is, is a bit challenging. Um, but uh, we're up for the challenge. We've seen it uh, work. We've seen it work for us, and we want to build on that for the for the next place. Brilliant. I was just wondering, do you, um, <clears throat> like you said, you know, you, in the early days, your your accountant was not not thrilled with the, these sorts of initiatives, and uh, you know, sort of make it harder for you to become profitable. And I think uh, I think I read something you'd written. You know, you, you were saying that quite often going to, to kind of get investments even if you sort of put put your social case your values sort of right at the front of it quite often people will skip over that and you know they, they want to know what's at the back and, and to understand that I suppose the question is do you do you have things changed at all do you are you starting to find you know now you, you've been making a um, a business case for these sort of social interactions or you know sort of showing this the sort of the effect of the PR and everything else is that does that come across do people hear that if you're sitting down when you say when you're going for investment for 
Atticus, and you're saying that this this is at the core of the business. Are, are people do they understand that? Do they? Well, it's it's a really interesting question. Um, the first three investors who came up to stepped up um, to invest in Atticus, um, they did through through um, a network called the Angel Investment Network, and they'd given up just some brief headlines. Yeah, this is Iqbal's third restaurant. It's going to be about this. It's going to be over here, um, and. Um, so three guys said, yeah, look, we like this, you know, we want to pledge X amount towards it. And um, I went and met them all, and I said, look, um, what you don't know, what didn't come out in that network bulletin, is that we will be driving this through purpose, and this is how it's going to work, and we'll be investing in local communities, we'll be building volunteering programs. It is not a conventional business model. So you need to be aware that this is what you're backing. If you don't want to back it, it's best that... We walk away right now, rather than us have arguments further down the line. And do you know what? All three of them said, if that's what you're doing, we'll invest more. Because we don't do anything philanthropic in our own portfolio. If you're doing that, that's great. We want to be part of that. And, and they all, each one of them, committed more. So the, and, and, and so there are a lot of investors now, um, especially from the family office world, um, and also from you know, philanthropy uh, providers in the past who've seen that their their charitable giving hasn't really given hasn't really changed the world hasn't really hasn't really solved the problems that they set out to achieve and so increasingly are looking at how businesses can make those social interventions in a more constructive and detailed um, process by measurement which is what businesses do and charities don't so they're now looking to s switch their uh, portfolios away from charities in the traditional sense and looking at socially meaningful businesses can actually make a return and make a social in, uh, impact at the same time. Um, so we're in this transition phase where there's a lot of impact investment money around that's looking for new talent to back that does all these things. And it very much fits with how the millennial generation are looking at businesses as well. So there's going to be a bit of a stop start and there is a lot more money out there to invest in these projects, and there are socially impactful and profitable businesses that need to be backed. So you think if you can make the case, you know, show show this the genuine business case and the social impact that there is, people are looking for that. Yeah, I, I think there has to be change on both sides, um, both on the impact investment communities criteria, uh, which at the moment are probably too rigid because um, they want you to they want to see a business that starts with its social mission. So uh, there's a great um, business in Borough Market called Rubies in the Rubble, uh, which takes discarded fruit and vegetables from uh, some of the traders here and from supermarkets that, um, and use those to make um, chutneys and sauces. Um, and they start with the, uh, the principle that there is too much waste of good food. And we will take that discarded fruit and vegetables and we will make a business out of them. So that's a very different model from saying, I want to create fantastic sauces and uh, chutneys, and I will use discarded fruits and vegetables to do that. The, um, what I just described as the second one would be a more commercially, uh, a traditionally commercial perspective that takes into account where, our, where, the, where, the, where the human spirit currently is. Um, the first says, I have a solution to a problem, and this is my means to fix it. Um, so. The impact investment community has uh, made it difficult for itself to, to find enough credible businesses that can do both the mission and the profit. Um, 
and similarly, a lot of socially minded businesses are very good at the social part, but and this is very true of social enterprises as well, is that they're great on the mission, they're great on the delivery of the mission, but they're not so great on returning investments. So both sides need um, to understand each other a bit more and understand how those complex relationships can actually be made much more fruitful. But these are very exciting times. This kind of conversation wouldn't have existed three to five years ago. And um, so it is moving at a rapid pace. And um, so these are very exciting times for both investors and operators and founders to, to build a common alliance. You say that, that sort of that difference between you know defining the social mission first um, as opposed to sort of profit you know having it as a, a an aim of a profitable company it sounds a subtle difference but it's quite it's quite profound um, in, in terms of the effects it has do you it's not a case of you know if if there is an investor if sorry if there's a business someone's got an idea for a business you know with a social purpose it's not a case of rewriting your proposal just to sort of, you know to define that first to go for that sort of investment it, it, it it's not as kind of it's not just a matter of words and um, it's something kind of at the core of the way it's set up I, I suppose throughout the history of time between um, of investment there's always been a shoehorning of a product to to meet the expectations of the of the investor there's another word which um, keeps coming up in conversations and you can is authenticity it's like yeah, how genuine is this how are you just coming to me because this is what you you think I want to hear, or are you actually going to do it? Um, and on that second point, um, I'm developing a social charter, which I'm going to uh, embed into our articles of association so we can never deviate from that. And I'm going to employ someone whose job it will be, will be to hold me to account on whether I deliver that social mission or not. Uh, if I just said it in order to get investment and didn't actually do it, It'd be a bit too late for everyone because it messes money is in there. Um, but uh, the credibility and the mindset of the, the new customer, especially the, the 18 to 34 uh, year old millennial, will not take kindly to the fact that you know, these things haven't been followed through because they will hold you to account for them. I mean, I've, I've heard the term uh, sort of greenwashing, you know, more on sustainability things, but, but that kind of uh, desire to interrogate claims like this, you know, if you're, if you're sort of say as a food business claiming that you're extremely sustainable or whatever it is if people investigate that and find that you're not what you say you are that's you know the very you know the worst kind of PR possible really amongst those, amongst those well, I'll, people, I'll give you a classic it? example yeah. of just that Unilever widely considered to be one of the most enlightened uh, multinationals in the world um, quite often fall foul of organizations like Greenpeace so um, Unilever had a contract to for example to uh, uh, on palm oil in Borneo and uh, Greenpeace found out that they were uh, uh, the deforestation that was going on in order to deliver their palm oil was reducing um, the amount of trees um, in, in Borneo at the rate of 2% a year so it was doing the opposite of what it said it was going to do and, I, I, and it took Greenpeace to bring that to everyone's attention and because you know, Greenpeace bring uh, brilliantly belligerent in, in making sure that their, their voices get heard, Unilever had to change its way. It wouldn't have all, uh, on its own, and a customer on its own would never have found that out. That's why organisations like Greenpeace are hugely useful to us. And as time goes on, customers will increasingly engage with us. Shareholders will increasingly ask businesses, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? Why have we not 
um, if you were, say, say you were an investor in Primark and you saw a healthy profit come through. I, I mean, it hasn't happened as yet, but do you remember the, the Rana Plaza tragedy in Bangladesh where the, the Primark factory uh, collapsed and, and killed um, so many people? They were all making Primark t-shirts. Does any Primark shareholder say to Primark, it's great that we made all the profit, but did we have to do it at the expense of all those people? And, and what are we doing to make sure that our factories are safer in the future? And how are we going to make sure that we pay them better? Because it's all coming back on us as a, as a reputational risk. Um, those conversations will get louder and louder, and, and people will be, feel much more vocalised and able to vocalise what um, their... It's a very different, well, very, very different to sort of having a CSR person kind of on the periphery of your organisation, isn't it? If you, what you just described about, you know, having it in your articles of, incorpor of incorporation yeah. is sort of the, the opposite. Of I, that, I, really. I, I'd like to see the end of CSR. I think that CSR was a, was a good kick up the backside for, especially for large businesses. pretty much exonerated the rest of the company from thinking about it. So if any idea came in and said, um, can we get involved with Southwark Cathedral and this new project, everyone in the company said, oh, you need to talk to the CSR uh, person about it. Nobody else got involved. Um, and um, if, you, if you marginalize it to one person, then nobody else is carrying those values in them. There's one person in an organization of maybe 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 people who's carrying the conscience of the whole company. I don't think that's a very viable way of putting it. Even in a restaurant like Roast, we've got 100 people. Um, everyone cares about these things. And I know that people care about these things because a few years ago, I asked um, an economist to assess the impacts of our foundation's activities uh, and to see if there was any consistency between all the things we did. And luckily, uh, we did have a consistency. I think it was about employment, um, education and, and empowerment uh, and we managed to calculate the, the same to the state of the things that we've done and um, so this huge report came out and I condensed it into three paragraphs and I gave our HR manager at the time a, a, a very short summary of what this was and I said can we just ask everyone in this company how important it is to them that we do things like this and 80% said it's the main reason they work here, um, which was a shock even to an optimist like me. Um, and so if, if these expectations are there, they're owned by everyone. And increasingly they'll be owned by everyone, especially if you open it up. Quite often, you know, philanthropy, CSR, these are things on a, a boardroom level. Uh, the, the daughter of the chairman would say, let's go do something for the homeless this year, and that becomes your charity of the year. Where's the rest of the company involved in that program? They're not. Um, and you know, we, more and more, people want to be involved in these things. They don't, and, they, and they want to work for a company that does more than line the owner's pockets. I thought I'd like to ask you a bit about where, where this sort of desire comes from. So there's, this, you know, there's obviously a kind of desire. You have this um, passion for delivering these social impacts. You know, it's, it's some of it. Uh, you've, you've spoken and you've written about your your own early life, your um, sort of childhood, teenage years, and you, it seems like you were at points going off the rails a little bit. And um, it seems also that there's sort of, you, you perhaps recognise there was a degree of luck that you didn't. 
Um, I don't know if that's sort of putting words in your mouth, but that, that's how I read it. And I, I was wondering whether the particular issues that you've sort of chosen that you want to engage with, the um, sort of crime and, and recidivism and that, that sort of thing, whether, whether you whether there's a sort of an element that that's, that's personal to you because you you see the luck that you had that it wasn't that way for you, is that? No, I, I mean, there, there, there are probably two pivotal um, parts to, which has led me to think this way. One, uh, one came from my parents and their, um, uh, who lived in uh, a very modest part of rural, what was then Bangladesh. Uh, it was now Bangladesh, but then it was, it was India and then became East Pakistan. Um, and when I was growing up in London, we came over in 1964, I was a baby. Um, I'd quite often hear my parents talking about using this term, first class first. And I had no idea what this meant. So I wondered, I said, what is this thing, first class first, that you all talk about? And it turned out that in that region of Bangladesh where my parents were both from, there's only one scholarship in the whole area for one person to go to university. And in order to get it, you had to not only get a first in their equivalent of the A-levels, uh, but you had to get the highest one, hence first class first. And um, my father, uh, who's son of a post office worker, uh, got it. And a couple of years later, my mum uh, got it. And, and, they, and they met at university. Um, and um, so I thought, so I saw two things. <laughs> Well, that's brilliant. Um, and then I thought of other things. Like, but what if you were ill on the day of the exams? What if there was somebody better than you? And you didn't go to that university, and you didn't meet, and you didn't end up in London. What would have happened? And um, a couple of years later, I went to Bangladesh for the first time. I was age 14. And I saw what would have happened. We'd still be living in that ramshackle old place with the... Um, they were like a five to a room. Um, and and, it, and you know, luck plays a huge part in, in that element of how we got to this country that you know, enabled me to go and achieve the things I did. And then at school, as you said, I, I, uh, I ran a gang. And we, we got up to all sorts of stuff. Um, and we were so busy making money that you know, we didn't bother to study, which... Um, uh, a bit odd seeing you know, my brother was head boy and got to university, my sister had head girl, got to university. My parents were academic, so it was, all, it, was, it was all a bit odd. But I had this very, very liberal upbringing where I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. And um, so we didn't bother studying. So when O levels came along, you know, we spectacularly failed them. Um, and um, so my parents said, Look, you've. Um, clearly failed because you didn't study. It's not so that you were really studious like your brother and sister, but turned out to be no good at it. You just never had a, you, you, you just never um, focused on it. So why don't you give it a go? You might, you might be good at it like your brother and sister. Um, and um, so I thought about it and, and, and the rest of the guys in that gang, um, they all drifted off from the school, that was it. They were all going out to work. Um, uh, and I thought, well, the gang's not around anymore, so I might as well give this a go. So I did, and I retook, and I got uh, my O-levels, A-levels, went to university, and all of that. Um, but um, what happened with the rest of the, uh, the guys from my school, um, two of them ended up in prison, one committed suicide, another one was killed. Um, 
And so they all led like useless, meaningless lives for the time that they had them. And the second piece of luck was that I had parents who actually encouraged me to think another way. And to, luck would have it that it worked out well for me. So you, um, we could always increase our likelihood of being lucky um, if we, say, mentor people or engage people from difficult backgrounds. Uh, and that, uh, and yeah, from a personal perspective, that's, that's very real to me. So when I go into prisons and they say, why are you here? And I tell them that story. I'm, just, I'm not here as some like uh, guy who's like you know, inherited money, feels um, um, sorry for people. I was like, I want you to have the same opportunities I had. You, you slipped up once. Let's, let's not have you slip up again. Um, and and and, and that, uh, people understand that a lot more. I suppose you know a lot of people who. I suppose if you've grown up with with a safety net of sorts, as you know, a lot of people, probably most people, have had, you know, within a family or something like that, you, you might not understand what it would be to slip up just once. If you don't have that sort of structure, you could be straight into yes, into that sort of environment. And, and, and you see it from the other side. There's um, um, someone who I've mentored a bit as uh, a former gang leader in Brixton. That a much much tougher gang than ours. You know, uh, these guys with knives and gang, uh, guns and um, made, made our gang look like a bunch of wusses in comparison. Um, but um, he had um, a, a very different story to tell. Like, I, I, and, you know, he had the classic, like, no father at home syndrome. So I said, when, when did you last see your father? He said, well, I only saw him once. And uh, oh, the last thing I remember, I, I, I was three and the police had come to our house to arrest him. And I said, what for? He said, murder. I said, was he guilty? He said, he was guilty. Um, so you start with that in life. Where are you going? I mean, something like 70% of the sons of um, criminals end, end up going into crime. So your, your life chances are stacked against you. Um, which is where someone like me can come in and say, okay, look, you haven't got that father figure at home. You haven't got people giving you any guidance. Um, come and talk to me about what it is that you're going through. And let's see if we can map out a, a better a better life for you. And I've done that quite a few times. I've mentored about 10 people at any one time. And you know, the term mentoring wasn't around in, in my time, but it's becoming an increasingly important way in which people from the private sector or, or even from the voluntary sector who wish to give up some of their own time to make sure other people don't fall off um, the, uh, the circuit um, can find new ways of um, raising their expectations and and realizing their expectations. Do you do you find if you if you kind of are taking when you're taking other people sort of you know from the outside into these places into prisons or into um, you know in, into the restaurant even here and sort of meeting people who've been in that sort of situation? Do you do you find that changes people's opinions, changes people's sort of understanding of of you know how you might end up in a situation like that? I mean, quite often it does, but um, also quite often the people I'll ask will be the people most likely to take up the invitation. Um, I'll give you an example. About three years ago, uh, I'd been visiting a, a Young Offenders Institute um, in South East London, uh, just next to Feltham. And um, there was a brilliant governor there who we were walking around the prison and he said, Iqbal, how do I stop seeing these same faces go out of here and then come back three months later? Um, how can you help us? 
get those guys into work and get them into careers and away from the crime that they don't want to commit, but they've got no other choice to. So um, one thing led to another, and one evening we did a, a roast pop-up dinner inside the officer's mess of this Young Offenders Institute. And I took a coachload of friends, customers, um, neighbours, and we went and had dinner which um, five inmates in the kitchen and six inmates served, cooked and served, a roast menu um, trained for the last day by our chefs and managers. Uh, a lot of our uh, waiters and waitresses um, volunteered their time that evening to assist with the programme, but um, I deliberately sat people in a way that they didn't know each other and that rather than talk to each other, I want you to talk to the guys who are serving you. Ask them anything, ask them what they can, a crime they committed, ask them when they're being released, what, what they expect to do when they come out. It's an open kitchen, by all means go and talk to the guys while they're prepping their food. They all know that you're going to come and talk to them. Don't talk to each other, talk to each other afterwards. But this is a unique opportunity for you to understand the mindset of um, people inside a prison. You've probably never visited a prison before, let, let, let knowingly talk to um, someone with a criminal background. Um, and for months and months and months, people would come back to me and say, are you going to do another one? Because I've told so many people about um, uh, what, what happened that day and the experiences of what I learned. Um, and I'd like to bring some other people along if you do it again. Um, and so those kind of like you know, direct interfaces uh, are very important, um, not just for our team, but for everyone else to understand and, and hopefully multiply the effect of what you know, the tiny interventions that we're making could be on a much bigger level. That sort of, um, I mean, it's, it's not sort of networking in a tra traditional sort of a sense, but you know, that kind of connecting people and uh, it seems to be something that's, that you, you do a lot, you know, that you connect with people and, um, you know, that you sort of, I suppose, in develop a, develop a voice within the industry and sort of, you know, become a, in a position of, of influence, really. I was wondering, is, is that something you sort of, I suppose, consciously developed? Or is that, has that just a, is that just sort of an extension of how you are and is something that's happened over the years? Well, it's you? interesting that you call it networking, because I, I suppose it is. It is, it is. it is a new form of networking. Um, and, and it's probably a social network as well. Um, I think it helps. I'm uh, outgoing by nature anyway, that I can say, come with me, let's do this. Um, that, um, and, and engage people to think the same with thinking. And also to challenge my thinking. Because I, I, I don't claim to have you know, all the right answers. And if people say, do you know what? what you're doing needs tweaking to this or doesn't make sense to me because of this. Um, let, let's have those conversations and let's do that. But um, I suppose you, you need to not just have the willingness to do it, but you've got to have the ability to share your infectious enthusiasm for the subject and pass it to others. So, because uh, there's no point in me saying, you will come with me. I've got to say that, come and see what I've seen. See if you want to be part of it. And that's how the word use network. Um, you can become part of that network if you want, or you create your own network on the back of um, what it is. But I, I suppose you need you know, both the ability to think that way and the ability to convince others to think that way. You can't do one without the other. You, um, so another, um, I suppose, medium that you do, you, you do quite a lot um, of writing and publishing. And so, you know, I, 
I suppose I was wondering where the um, you, you've got a background in journalism, and you know I think at a time that was that was sort of where you saw your career being. Um, is the when you when you sort of write in in these sort of on industry topics and in in this um, in this sort of way, is is it about changing people's thinking? Is it is it um, sort of about developing your own thinking on certain matters? Are you is it just an extension? Is it all of those things and? Well, I, I, I always wanted to be a journalist, and I, and I was you know, back in the uh, late 80s for a short period of time uh, until I uh, decided I, I needed to be, go back to my entrepreneurial roots, but you know, on the safer side of the street. And, um, but um, you know, selling and the ability to share ideas um, also needs the ability to create credible ideas in the first place. And they don't come out of voice, you know, they come out of like, not as reading, but actually experiencing at first hand how other people's lives are led, um, and seeing you know, how, and then applying your 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 mind to see have you seen other things in other parts of the world? Are there other companies that have policy that could be applied into a social perspective? And just like you know, um, swap and switch ideas from different contexts and, and have the ability to see if there are other ways of doing things, and if they are, to convince the right people that they're the right things to do. It becomes very, as you said earlier, I've, I've advised um, governments for you know, over a decade to be a Labour, Coalition, Conservative. I'm, I'm not party political. Um, so I'm, later this week I'm having lunch with a, a cabinet minister to talk about um, some food ideas I've got. Um, and people want to hear from the private sector. So I, I punch above my weight as a you know, SME, um, this would, you know, I can say this, to say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have lunch with a cabinet minister. It's like, it rolls off the tongue now, but it's like, it took a lot of years before uh, to get onto the radar of guys who, to, um, to say things like that. Um, so when I woke up this morning, I said, I've got that lunch on Thursday. What are the, the five messages that I want to put out? And if there are only three of them, what they be? And then concentrate that conversation around it. Um, and, and in order to get uh, um, those messages out, and in order to get to a point where somebody will say, Minister, you need to meet Iqbal. You need to have good reasons for them to meet you. And you've also got to know how the system works and what you, a conversation like that might achieve and what it might not achieve. There's no point saying, um, if I were you, I would um, reverse Brexit because it's not going to happen. So, um, so like, um, what Brexit has done is made us think about um, the people on our own doorsteps who we haven't historically recruited because it's been so easy to employ people from Eastern Europe. And this might give us a jolt into how we have a more immediate talent pipeline that could also so, uh, uh, solve a problem that the state has in the amount it pays out and benefits. Um, and then you, you sort of sway the argument in a way that this guy's going to listen. Uh, and he can, he can go away and say, I met this guy who thinks that he's, he's anti-Brexit, but he wants to make Brexit work for his business. Um, because that's the kind of conversation that they want to have and they, they can then broadcast. So you, it's worth knowing how the system works and, you know, uh, um, and what you can ask for and you know, what's just going to go way over their heads. So it, it takes time to 
to learn that process. And I imagine the and so the, the sort of the writing and all, all these kind of you know having these kind of conversations develops these ideas. Oh, for, for sure, you, as well, you, you, you kind of refine and and clarify, crystallize what exactly it is that you would want to then put across to. Yeah, I, I, to I, I mean, the word is reach. Um, um, having an occasional column in the Evening Standard and International Business Times, ask you know, and having other people, um, people ask me to go on TV shows and things. Um, it means that I have a voice that people are listening to, maybe not huge numbers, but enough for me to be on people's radar. And that, that takes a lot of time to get to. Um, but now that you know, I'm getting there, it's hugely important that you, you use that, that gift that you've been given, that you've worked for, um, to make the most of. Um, and, and that means sifting through 101 ideas that might enter your head or that people may say, you should go for this and um, think, look, these are the three that I can actually achieve and have mental discipline not to go for everything that comes into your head. That's difficult for something like me. That entrepreneurial sort of uh, spirit, Having like an undisciplined it's, it's, mind, yeah. having never like, uh, um, well, my dad was a philosopher and he said to my mum, when I was born, he told me about 22 years later, but you know, he, this one will have no discipline in his life, he'll do his own thing and he'll be my experiment in free will. Uh, it's not the kind of experiment I'd never, if I've had children, I'd, I'd, I'd probably follow. But um, it has led me um, not to have any filter in my head about what I should or shouldn't be thinking. So if thoughts do come into my head, I, it's not easy for me to switch them off. So it's much more challenging for me to have that, um, never having um, had discipline as a core focus in my, uh, in my way of like, structuring my mind. One of the um, so as, as well as all this, you know, the writing and the um, you know the sort of broadcasting, publishing. You've you've um, or rather as an extension of that, you've you know you published a book uh, recently, which what well, last last year I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, which I suppose you could say, given given the um, what you just said about you know having to pick a topic and you know pick what you really would want to sort of focus on, it, it must be something quite that you believe quite strongly and it's um i mean it's it's a so the title of it is charity sucks which is is quite a sort of intentionally provocative title isn't it it's a polemic series of books but um i wonder if we could just talk a little bit about that i think it, at, at the core of it is really is it's sort of belief and you and you touched on it sort of you know already in the interview earlier on you were saying you know that a sort of fundamental belief that um Charities are an inefficient way of dealing with dealing with the social issues that they attempt to deal with. You know, well-intentioned in most cases, but inefficient. And so it's sort of in that sense they they suck. Like you said, businesses charities don't measure in the same way that businesses do. That's the, that's the way that business operates. And business is a more effective, a more efficient way to deliver these social benefits and you know have lasting effects. Um, I suppose my question is how how did you arrive at that view? Is that something that you know the, the inefficiency of charities? Is that something that has developed over time that you've sort of just seen seen repeated instances of and have just come to this view, or was it was there sort of a light bulb moment? Well, um, I mean, a bit of both. I mean, like the, um, 
Incidentally, I, I really regret calling the book Charity Sucks. It really? Just, <laughs> it just, caused you all sorts of trouble. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, got, I, I got more than my fair share of trolling and abuse, but um, maybe I should have called it something like Charity Isn't Working or uh, something like that. But um, um, uh, in, in any case, so I, I sit by exactly everything I said in the book. Um, and and it, it didn't just you know, occur to me one day. I've, it came after about a decade of not just sitting on the boards of some charities, but also chairing quite a few. So I, get, I got to know charities like quite intimately from the inside. And, um, um, and whatever the charity was, I'd say pretty much every single one that I was involved with. And over the last 10 years, that's probably been about 30. Um, they all had one common trait. They didn't have a commercial bone in their body. They didn't want to hear from me about commercial ways of uh, generating income. They only wanted to hear from me about you know, what the foundation was going to uh, write the cheque for them was. They didn't want to hear from me that I wanted to know where that money went to when you put uh, uh, some, some cash behind this project in West Africa. What were the outcomes? How, how, how do you measure? Um, these are all inconvenient questions for them who are on their own crusade, their own higher purpose um, mission. And um, so I, I, I always thought, well, how do you actually know that you're actually doing, uh, you're achieving the impacts that you thought? Because most donors don't actually ask. You make an emotive appeal to them, and they make an emotive response. And so the relationship between a donor and a charity is, is very quick, it's instant. I tell you something, or show you a picture of a starving child, you feel terrible. You write out a check, and that's it. You will never find out what that check did. You'll never, um, and if you did say, oh, by the way, what happened to that kid I wrote that check? They won't know. Um, and, and so the practices are largely unaccountable. And when you do delve into them, and you start asking, you, you roll the sleeves and say, okay, let's actually unearth what happened here. Um, we, we all know about charities that have ludicrously high admin costs and marketing costs. Um, um, the, uh, the Sunday Times uh, a couple of years ago did an expose on a number of charities um, uh, like the Mother Teresa Foundation who send out envelopes and uh, asking for cash. Um, um, it turned out the Mother Teresa one, according to the report, 81% of every pound that you gave them went into marketing. And um, so, you know, 19 pence and every pound actually went where you thought all of it was going, where you presumed a lot of it was going. Um, so there, there were all those like classic concerns about charities, but the more fundamental one was the um, was the realization that businesses can go into those same situations um, that charities do and come out with significantly different. Outcomes, and I'll give you an example that I, I wrote about in the book. When uh, I, I went to a, West, a very poor West African state called Togo, um, and um, there's um, a slum, slum dwelling uh, on, on the coastal uh, part of Togo called Katanga, um, and they had every sort of uh, horrible experience going on there, overcrowding. Um, Poverty, other uh, we have people who eat once every two days, um, open sewers, you know, no hygiene, no education, um, 
massive AIDS issues. Um, and, um, and charity after charity would come in and write them big reports saying this is what you need to do. And um, another was like making the blindest bit of difference in, um, to these guys. And, um, and then I was just walking around uh, uh, um, uh, the, the dwelling and, um, and I came across a, a group of very bright girls who were studying in the school and they, they, they were smartly dressed and they were clearly um, motivated to lead a life that wasn't going to be like that their parents. And so um, the one big business on a coastal uh, area like that is fish and the big uh, business over there is uh, drying fish and taking it to market. Um, the women who ran these businesses had never been formally trained in how to run businesses and so um, they were asking me why it was that they do all this work but they never end up making any money. And um, so I, I taught them through the process, you know, we, who are you selling it to, how long is it taking and, and you, uh, within an hour I, I'd, I'd worked out exactly what their problem was, you know, why they're um, overpaying for their fish, how they're um, underselling to the middleman, why they're waiting so long for the cash um, um, to come back to them. Uh, and I thought, surely there are business studies courses that you could go on. And it turned out there was um, a business college. Um, uh, and um, I paid for five girls to go through um, this business uh, studies course. And um, with, with certain conditions, which only a business person would have done, uh, so that it's a loan. It's not a grant, so you have to repay it. Um, once you come out of your business studies, you don't go into low made the capital, you come back here and you set up a business here. And when you come to grow, you repay the loan and you commit to employing other people from the slum. Uh, all five girls uh, went through the course, all five set up their own businesses. Some now employ three, four people. They've all repaid their loans. Uh, we've then doubled that and uh, brought in a much bigger program because um, you know, at, at each stage of the way I was saying like how is it working who's doing what um, and, and so there's a local YMCA that was monitoring for us uh, and and so the YMCA got into a discipline of like reporting uh, a financial report uh, and um, just in the same way that if I was investing in a business you'd ask whoever you're investing in What's actually happening? How do we actually make this work? How do we know that it's, it's going to get to where you thought it was going to go? Um, and so what I saw there was that if a business could go into like a, uh, a famine-stricken uh, slum like that and make a, okay, a small change, well, yeah, a significant one, um, we should be doing more of it because we know the approaches that work. Our definition of success is not in raising money is delivering a return on that money. A definition for success in a charity is how much money they raised last year. Not you know, how many people's lives they've saved or how many people they've put into work or how many people have received education on the back of um, a project of theirs and you know, what their education is done in terms of their employment uh, opportunities. Uh, whereas in business you ask all those questions all the time. So um, charity sucks because business does it better. That was the, um, the core message. Um, yeah, obviously, charities hated it, but um, a number of business people have said to me, when are you going on another one of those Togo trips? Because I want to come along and see how we can do that as well. And uh, businesses everywhere now are 
get involved in their local communities. They know that they've got skills that they inside their organisations that could be doing more than just giving a shareholder return. And they want to get involved in these kind of things. Charities quite often overlap each other. Businesses always compete and need to survive. Um, and so the, 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 the book was timely in that we are moving into this new form of capitalism uh, that businesses can now create solutions to the problems that quite often we in the past have created ourselves. Um, and um, so if, uh, I mean, it came out at the time that uh, the Philip Green BHS affair was coming out. So I used to go on TV chat shows and things like this and they say, what about Philip Green? I said, well, what about Philip Green? And firstly, the shareholders in that business you know, they put their own money in and it was their loss. Um, the state will find a way of get, making sure those pensions get paid. Um, if not, the market will sort it out one way or the other. It is not a great advert for capitalism, and certainly not uh, a great advert for capitalism being the cause uh, and the driver of our future benefit. But um, if for every um, Philip Green, I can name you five charities that squander money that we donated in good faith. Um, that did the opposite. Do you, do you think it is, is always the case then that <clears throat> the businesses can perform better than charities in, in, in any, are there any situations where you think a charity is a, a better model? I, I, I'm trying to think of a, um, like you said, businesses compete and are there, you know, these, these kind of um, sort of really knotty problems that need a lot of collaboration is, is a, just sort of playing devil's advocate, is oh, there is there absolutely. is there a place for charity for certain sorts of issues? We'll we'll always need charities. There'll always be disasters and emergencies around the world. There'll always be a tsunami that we will need to um, either put our hands in our pockets or get in a plane and go and help sort of because human beings are like we have an innate good nature. We we want to do good and. Uh, we often don't know how to, and charities are, are, are ideally placed to nurture that nature. Um, and there's no way in the world that uh, we'd be in a better place without charities. Uh, there are way too many of them doing way too many similar things um, and not providing enough credible solutions. But yes, there will always be a need for charity. And, um, and uh, if you just look at, say, like the prison service, um, there are so many prison charities around. That, and I, uh, as you probably guessed, spent a lot of time in that sector. But um, well, the fundamental fact of the matter is that without prison charities, uh, the prison system would collapse in Britain. Um, so, uh, um, so uh, they, they have a huge part to play. They could just—I just believe—they could do it a lot better than they do, and businesses could do it even better than they. So it's, it's um, perhaps we could talk a little bit about um, something you mentioned in your book, um, which is the a B Corporation um, structure. It's something that I mean, I'd, I think I'd, I'd heard of vaguely, but you know, I hadn't really looked into until I read it. Um, and I, I suspect a lot of people listening may have may have sort of vaguely heard. It seems to me that this is a sort of um, a middle ground of sorts. You know, sort of a, whether it's um, kind of. a charity acting in the way of a business or a business putting charitable motives at its core. I'm, I'm not sure which it is, which is a better description, but it's, it's sort of something in between and perhaps you could yeah, explain I, I, what I, that I, is. I, 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 let me explain how 
how a big corporation works. So it started in America um, because under company law in America, uh, a company's executives have one single obligation, which is to maximize shareholder value. So a company that gives a donation to a water project in Ethiopia is effectively breaking the law in America because that is a deviation from uh, your obligation to fulfill um, the maximum returns or profits. Um, and increasingly, um, businesses have wanted to come out of such a structure because not everybody wants to go to work to make uh, the bosses richer. Uh, they want to see that what they're doing has a, a bigger, more profound impact on, on the planet. Um, they, they want to feel better about themselves, that they're working in the right kind of place. And so um, the B Corporation, where the B stands for benefit, um, was set up to provide an alternative company structure where um, businesses were allowed to do other things. And um, increasingly, um, I mean, Ben and Jerry's is the best, biggest example of a, um, of a B Corporation. Um, but where, where companies have converted to B Corporation status, they've seen uh, greater employee um, uh, longevity, uh, the willingness to stay with them for longer, they want to, um, and, the, and, and the greatest feeling of satisfaction, which is, uh, is, it's not a fluffy statement, that is a crucial element of how a business operates, how do you keep your people, how do you make them more motivated. Um, now it's come to the state, uh, from the states it's come over to Britain, um, one of the things that it does in Britain that um, is another future way in which business can be conducted is that um, the B Corporation, uh, I mean, I don't mean this dismissively, but it's a good badge to have. Um, that if I know that a supplier that we haven't used is a certified B Corp, I might be more inclined to use them because they, they share my values and I want to do business with companies that share my values. Uh, a customer might walk past first that haven't been there before and if they see a B Corporation, think if we were to become that, um, might be more inclined to come and walk in. So because um, they, they want to spend their money with people who, who do the same things as them. A little, like you said, sort of early on, you know, how, how do you interrogate somebody's claims? You know, if, if somebody's saying that we are this sort of a business and there, there is an accreditation, then, then that's something easy to understand, quick to, you know, you, you know, at least broadly what they stand for as a consumer. Without, and and, and uh, I've, I've looked at um, uh, applying for B Corp status and um, and it's not an easy process to apply for it. It is, uh, it is a fairly rigorous uh, process. You can't just like say, "Hey, I'm a nice bloke. Give me, give me the badge." You've got to, you've got to earn the badge, and they will check that you still earn the badge a year later. Um, so it is quite a, a thorough process to go through and quite credible as a result. Whether it takes off in Britain, I don't know, but um, the people behind it are very confident. I've heard said. Um, I, I watched someone speaking recently, and they were saying that. Um, in Britain, it, it's not, you know, there, there is a sort of misconception that it's like in America, the purpose, the primary purpose of a company is to maximise shareholder value, and that's, they were saying that's not the case, it is, the law is clear, it's stakeholder value, and so the issue is properly defining stakeholders. Is it, Would you sort of agree with that? I mean, does that, if you do fully define your stakeholders, you know, as planet and people as well as profit, and, you know, sort of cast that as widely as you can does that does that allow you to kind of um, put those things out there those ish, 
attributes at the heart of your business? Well, there's two things. I mean, um, firstly, you can quantify stakeholders, um, not just who they are or how many there are, but what an impact on them would be. So, say for Attica, so we've said that um, one of our stakeholder uh, groups identified as are people who aren't within our networks yet. Um, and how do they become stakeholders? How, how are they stakeholders? Is, well, they're not yet, but we convert them. So if you are uh, recovering from a drug addiction or you're, um, um, you've had a mental health problem in the past, you're not on our radar. We're, we're not engaging with you. Whereas if we, we were aware that they're not on our radar and went out to reach out to them so that they found a way in which they might look at us as a place that they could come and work, they can then become part of our uh, network. So it's not just people who we know, it's the people we don't know as well. And that's a huge multiplier effect on, um, on what, what the stakeholder community is. Um, there's another element to it is that um, shareholder values um, are always assumed to be greed. But increasingly, what we found is that a shareholder's values may also align with ours. We just have assumed that they just want to take the biggest amount of money um, uh, uh, and, and that's it. Increasing shareholders' values are driving and probably the most significant voice to drive a change in a, co a company's commercial psyche because a company director has to listen to his investors. may not want to listen to um, some employees, may not want to listen to um, some big mouth like me saying you should do what I do. Um, but they'll listen to their investors because they've, they've got to. And so it's uh, an unexplored piece, but something I think will, and uh, uh, the envelope will open up over time, is are we underestimating the values that shareholders have? Well, we're, we're sort of talking about the future, and you know, future, future of charities, future, you know, we, and this sort of, this model, this, this middle way, or, um, you know, sort of social, social um, impacts, coming into business and, and charities becoming more accountable so you know that the, the way for both of those um, I was thinking maybe we could talk a bit about just um, the future for the industry a bit more generally I, I and we actually we sort of mentioned we mentioned it at, um, before we started to recording again but um, they've recently the people have started to write about the sort of demise of the restaurant industry almost you know it seems to be a bit of bit of doom Doom, uh, doom and gloom. It's <laughs> a bit of naysayers about the certainly about the the boom, about the the kind of growth in the restaurant industry coming to an end, and um, citing things like Brexit and pressures on um, staffing, rising rents, and all those those kind of things. What's I know it's something you you sort of talked about and, and have an opinion on. I was just wondering what you whether you think that is um, there's some justification to that. Whether you think the restaurant industry. Is is sort of uh, ending a boom time and and is going to be pared back from where it is. Well, uh, uh, we've had many many years, especially in London, of unprecedented growth in the restaurant industry. Even in two thousand and eight, uh, we were seeing here at Roast um, in the middle of the recession, business still booming. Um, uh, and yeah, our managers asked me, well, how how comes when there's a recession out there, everyone's still in here? And in fact, the average check was rising. Um, and I said, well, unlike previous recessions, uh, corporate entertaining and restaurants has become a, an essential marketing tool. It's not a luxury. Um, so this will only continue. 
And if people are spending more now, it's because they're having to work harder to win the business that they took for granted in the past. Um, so restaurants um, managed to survive that last recession. Um, but what did happen was that um, we encouraged an environment where every kind of like idea managed to find a home. And, um, and as a result of it, um, and, and some of those ideas were completely daft, but we were in uh, experimental mode in the dining scene. And so we, we, we wouldn't dismiss them unless we went and tried it. And so, um, but you know, some of them were just like, inherently bad. They were just like, they, it's like, what were you thinking kind of things. And, and so this cyclical cull that we're starting to see now, we'll see more in the new year, it's just, it's not good restaurants going down, it's bad restaurants going down, badly thought out restaurants. Uh, restaurants that may have been very good, but in the long location. Uh, all those things that we, we're so much in a rapid storm when, at the good times, that we'll just take any idea and put it anywhere, and, and it's got a good chance of succeeding. Uh, a discipline will come into the London restaurant market next year, where we'll be looking at whether the rents are right, whether landlords can really justify the prices that they're charging. We'll be looking at whether our product is relevant to our, con our customer, or are we just um, pontificating, saying, here's my new uh, view of what food is, or I'm saying, this is what my customers want, and this is what they'd like to see, and let's work more around them. There hasn't been much of that in the uh, last few years. There's been uh, a lot of emperor's new clothes. Um, there have been a lot of um, places that have been built on the vanity of the founder, rather than desire of the customer. Um, and we'll come back to all of those, and we'll come back to authenticity and, and clarity and, and quality. These words weren't around much while we were looking for new ways of combining noodles with pasta, and uh, which I promise you existed once, and, and uh, Japanese-Italian recipe. Um, needless to say, it's not here anymore. Uh, and it's those kind of restaurants that are going down, and hopefully those that carry on working on their product and carry on uh, recognizing customer expectations are the ones that will carry on growing. So then, when the when the tide goes out, you see who was swimming naked. It'll be that sort of a situation. But, definitely, the, yeah. uh, the, um, and, and in, 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 in every industry, this happens. I mean, it happens in tech all the time. Um, tech businesses get, are constantly innovating. Restaurants don't innovate so much, and I think in order to keep up with the times, they're, they're going to have to not just innovate in isolation from the context in which they're in, but very much as part of, of the process of how we live and you know, what as businesses we should be achieving. I'd like to ask you a few more sort of general questions as we as we sort of start to start to just draw it a bit to the close to a close. So there's sort of questions I like to ask everyone that I that I've sat down with. So um, I've got a few of them and I'm just uh, going to pick one out. I think the thing I'd like to ask you what if you were able to pick up the phone and speak to your 20 year old self, um, what would you say to them? Wow. Um, well, um, what was I doing at the age of 20? That's I was, I was at university. <laughs> that is, yeah. I, I was at university thinking that I, I was going to be um, a journalist. Um, and what I probably would have said to myself was like, you've already proven that you're good at business. You turned your first profit at the age of 11. On the, okay, on the back of ill-gotten gains, I bought myself a suit at the age of 13 from Selfridges for £100. That was 1976. Um, I wouldn't have deluded myself to think that I could work for anyone else, which is what being a journalist entails. Um, 
and I would have gone much more quickly into business. Um, and, um, and the other thing that I would have asked, and I, I'd never thought about it myself, was ask for advice. I was, I, I, I mean, people say I'm arrogant now, you should have met me when I was 20. <laughs> uh, I, I would have thought, uh, I don't need any advice because I'm just, Got here, right I'm, I'm just yeah. here and ready to take over the world. Mm. Um, and uh, by all means, I'm, I have ambitions to take over the world, but you're not going to do them at the age of 20. Um, one of the so the, the podcast is is called Doing Good Through Food, and one of the things that I found is that uh, that means something different to pretty much everybody that hears it. If I, when I say when you hear it, what does that what does that immediately bring to mind for you? I mean, food has um, gone through so many transformations um, in the last few decades, from being sustenance to being um, empowerment to being uh, a creative industry which is what it really is now. Um, to do, uh, the element of doing good with food has largely come about through looking at our supply chains and looking at what sustainability means to us. Uh, but um, in the process of doing this new southern US restaurant, it also uh, um, uh, means thinking new ways of, of doing things. So, for example, yeah, stable diets of a southern US meal would be collard greens. I don't want to be flying over collard greens from North Carolina. So instead, we're getting the seeds and we're growing them on an organic farm in, uh, in, in Glamorgan. And, uh, we, we, um, and rather than fly over tons of grits um, from, uh, from Alabama every year, we've uh, found a, a farmer who will uh, grow uh, corn kernels to the way we want them. And Three weeks ago, we went down to a place in Hazelmere, um, sorry, and, um, and, um, uh, and, and we found a guy who would mill our grits for us. So we'll have the first brick grits and, um, <laughs> uh, uh, ever been done. And Are so, they going to be called brick grits? Well, I, I think we're going to have to. Something <laughs> like that. that. <laughs> uh, but um, um, the good is not just building the Sustainable Restaurant Association three tick. Uh, things which we will aspire to, um, but also to do it in ways that haven't been done before because it's such a new thought process that a lot of things are evolving over time. Aquaponics, we're looking at um, uh, take, um, bringing rearing catfish in the UK rather than flying them over and using the water and the um, secretions from them to um, uh, fertilize our own collard greens of the future. There's like great ways in which you can, um, where food can do good, um, but food also has to taste good as well. So it's what you do with it as well as how it gets to you. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm going to ask you, I, it's a big question, um, but I'll, how do you hope to be remembered? Um, <laughs> There's a question to throw at you. <laughs> um, well, it, a lot of, hopefully, I'll have got some more time in me to redeem some of my early errors and get known for more than just being a troublesome love laugh. If I can make some direct interventions between prisons and employers, that would be a huge thing for me. If I can convince gang leaders to use their entrepreneurial skills and bring them to the safe side of the road. Uh, I'd love to have some 
um, legacy impact on that. Um, but I suppose, of all the things, I, I want to be seen as an innovator in the London restaurant environment and not see that in isolation from social purpose, but actually driven by social purpose. And that's probably something that um, currently uh, I'm in a rare space and hopefully it could encourage others to do the same. Well, I'd like to wish you, you know, all, all the best with doing that in the future and, you know, hope that that Atticus helps you to achieve all of that as well. I, I, think, I think it's a perfect place to, to leave it. So I'd just like to say thank you very much. Thank for you your for talking time. to me. No, it, it's, been, it's been really good. Thank you very much.